We're going to be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses, as we continue our series of sermons in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. This is God's inerrant word. Please give it your full attention. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Back in the early days of this country, when the pioneers were pushing the boundaries of our country westward, there was a young Lutheran pastor who was out there on that western frontier and one day he was asked by a Baptist family to do a funeral for them. And since pastors were in a short supply, he was the only minister that was within a hundred miles of where they were, he wasn't sure what he should do. So he sent a telegram, a message back to his bishop back east and he asked this question, said, I've been asked to do a funeral for some Baptists, what should I do? He got a very brief response back by, mess, by uh, telegram saying, bury all the Baptists you can. <laughs> now we may joke about it, but the fact that we are so divided, that we have so many labels on our churches to distinguish us from one another, it's really sad. And it's actually a tragedy that there has been so much division in the Church of Christ over the past 200 years, over the past 2,000 years, really since the very beginning of God's people, sin has caused division. Jesus prayed in John 17, the night before he went to the cross to die for our sins, he prayed that the church would be one. He said to the Father, make the church one so that the world will know that you sent me. It's supposed to be a very big part of our witness to the world around us that we are united, that we are one. And so division severely hurts our witness. Paul prayed, or actually appealed, gave an exhortation to the church in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. So, Jesus prays that the church would be one. Paul commands the church to be one, to not be divided. And yet, in this country, there are over 200 different Protestant denominations. And it's even worse when you look worldwide. They say that, I don't know how they figured this out, but they say there's 45,000 different denominations around the world. We are badly divided. 
But Paul, in the passage we just read, these verses in the beginning of chapter 4, say that we are one. One body, with one hope, with one Lord, and one faith. How can these things be true? How can we be so divided and yet Paul say we're one? Well, the difference is our horizontal perspective as compared to God's vertical perspective. From God's perspective, as he looks at his church, the one that he planned before the foundation of the world, the one that he sent his son to die for, the one that he sent his spirit to transform, it's one church. The invisible church, so to speak, that only God can see, the true church, is one church. And so I want to begin there. I'm going to actually begin with the end of the passage, verses 4 through 6, I want to be focus on first, and then go back to the beginning of the passage to talk about how can this be in our reality. But first of all, I want you to see from Paul's perspective, from God's perspective, how we are one church. First of all, Paul says we're one body. He says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as we have a physical body and we also have a spiritual nature, a soul, the church is a spiritual organism, so to speak. We are the body of Christ. He is the head and the spirit dwells within us. Paul describes this in several places in the New Testament, but particularly in Romans chapter 12. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We are like different parts of the body. We have differences, we have different gifts, different functions, different roles to play, but we are orchestrated by Christ through his spirit, Christ our head, through the spirit that dwells within us to be one body. We talked last week about how the soul is such a witness to God as our creator because science can't explain the soul. Well, science also can't explain how in the world could blind chance create a body that is so intricately interwoven, so, so able to work in coordination by and large, well, that's Paul's metaphor for the church. That's how God sees the church. That's how he's constructed us. That's how he's reconstructed us in Christ. We are the body of Christ. But notice, if you go back to verse 3, he says, Paul's talking, he's talking about the unity of the spirit. What he means there is that he, as he begins to talk about the body of Christ, the body being indwelt by the spirit, it's that the spirit creates this, this unity that we have in the midst of our diversity. It's created by the Spirit. It's a gift of God. We didn't create it. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For in one Spirit you were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. No matter what our differences, no matter what our backgrounds, the Spirit has brought us into this one spiritual organism, the body of Christ, with Christ as our head. So what I want you to realize there is that the unity that we have as God looks at his church, the unity that we have comes from within. It's internal. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit producing it, creating it, producing it within us. Every other unity that you know in this world, in this fallen world, is external. 
the groups that you're a part of, the identities that you have. Those unities are based in things like your employer, possibly, or your country, your ethnicity, your skin color, your sports allegiance, your school, your age group. They're all external. But when God looks at his church, the unity that we have is produced from within. It's internal. So we are one body. Secondly, Paul says we, are, we have one destiny. We are all going to the same place. We all have that same hope. He says you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And again, I have to remind you that when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't mean the same thing that the world means by hope. When the world hopes for something based in its religions or its philosophies or its pursuits, it's a wish. I wish I could do this. I wish I could be this. I wish I could be there. But for us, our hope is a confidence. God is faithful to his promise. That is the hope that we have. God cannot break his promise to us. We are headed to the new Jerusalem that the book of Revelation describes. That is the home we're headed for. We live in prosperity. We live in luxury in this culture. And so we don't focus enough on our future hope. We're so caught up in the present. The slaves in the early parts of our country's history did not have the same kind of luxury and comfort that we have. And as they worked to the bone out in the cotton fields, they would sing this song. It went this way. We are bound for the promised land. We are bound for the promised land. Oh, won't you come and join with me? We are bound for the promised land. That's the hope that Paul's talking about. We have one destiny. or We are one body of believers who have one destiny the home that Christ has gone to prepare for us. Rob Gustafson is teaching a great class on the Psalms of Ascents currently. If you're not attending Sunday school, I recommend it to you. And in that class, he's leading us through those Psalms as they teach us that we are on a pilgrimage. We are traveling through the wilderness to Zion, to Jerusalem. For us, it's the new Jerusalem, the perfected Jerusalem that Christ will establish when he returns. We are one body with one destiny. We share this one hope together. Thirdly, Paul says we have one master. He says there's one Lord. We have one Lord, one king, Jesus Christ, the king appointed by the God who created the universe. Because we have one king and one Lord, we have one worldview, not many worldviews. We have one law, not many different laws and requirements. We have one will, it's his will be done. He is Lord. Jesus' Lord was the most important creed and confession of the early church, and it continues to be. Jesus is Lord, and we share that one Lord. That's a foundation of our unity. We have one set of values, one standard for our morality. We have one purpose, and it's all determined by our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. That means we also have one mission. It's his mission. 
We don't make up our own mission. We don't seek our own goal in life. Jesus is Lord. And so we have the same mission he has. He has actually a twofold mission, primarily to glorify the Father, but secondly to glorify the Father by bringing his kingdom to earth, by preaching the gospel, fulfilling the great commission. We share that one mission, no matter how our callings may differ from person to person, we are on that same mission. Thirdly, or fourthly, he says, we together have one creed. He says, there's one faith. Now, early in the book of Ephesians, when he talked about faith, he was talking about the trust that we have. We are saved by faith, not works. But with chapter 4, he shifts to a different sense of faith. In other words, as Jude calls it, the faith that once was delivered, once for all was entrusted to the saints. The core beliefs, the essential beliefs of God's revelation by which we, believing them, we are saved and transformed. The point that Paul's making here, saying we have one faith, is that the true church is based upon the foundation of truth, not the shifting sands of worldly values and thought. There are essential doctrines, things that are taught clearly in the word of God that are the foundation of the church that must be believed, must be affirmed, can't be compromised, can't be altered, can't be picked and choose from. The inerrancy of God's word, the fact that it is fully the word of God, of full authority over faith and life. The idea that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The things of the Apostles' Creed that we say in our services. That he was raised from the dead for our justification. That he is coming again to bring to completion our salvation. These are essential truths upon which the true church is built. When God looks at his church, the church on earth, it's the church that affirms these essential truths, especially the central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we are saved. Substitutionary atonement is an, not an optional teaching for the church. Jesus died in our place and bore the wrath that we deserved. He took the punishment that you and I deserve so that we can be saved by faith alone. He obeyed the law and gives that obedience to us as a gift. This is essential to the true church. When God looks at the true church from his heavenly perspective, that's what he hears being preached and taught in, those, in that church. There's a story told about Martin of Tours. If you don't know who Martin of Tours was, he was a church leader back in the 300s. Martin Luther was actually named after Martin of Tours. But there's a legend, which probably didn't happen, but it makes a nice point, so I'm going to use it anyway. There's a legend about Martin of Tours that one day Satan appeared to him in a vision disguised as Jesus. And Martin of Tours thought, this is Jesus, and so he fell on his face to worship what he saw but then as he bowed down, he noticed that this Jesus didn't have scars in his hand or on his side. And so he said to this vision, he said, Jesus, where are your scars? And when he asked the question, Satan's apparition disappeared. I like that story because it's a question that needs to be asked in every church. If the Jesus you preach, the Jesus you worship, the Jesus you teach does not have the scars of the crucifixion, if he does not bear our sins through a blood atonement, then 
you're not a true church. It's an essential doctrine. Where are the nail prints in your hands, Jesus, is a question that always has to be asked in a church where you don't see it. Now, having said that, as long as we are sinners, we are going to see by faith, but by faith through the glass darkly. Our understanding is going to be imperfect. There are going to be things that the scriptures teach that we in the true church disagree about. We're going to struggle to get on the same page with some of these secondary, non-essential teachings of the Word of God. But what is necessary to be believed, and this is what our confession teaches, what is necessary to believe is clear and must not be compromised, must not be denied, must not be switched out for any other teaching. The essentials are clear. I have a good friend here in town who is dispensational and baptistic in his theology, so we disagree on a lot of the secondary interpretations of scripture. But he's a dearly loved brother. We get together and we talk scripture, we talk spiritual things, we talk ministry, we get along great. And yes, we will talk about things we disagree about. But we do it in love for one another. And we do it as a, 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 our whole assumption is we're going to search the scriptures together and pray that the spirit will lead us to get on the same page and that should be the attitude of the true church wherever it exists is that okay we're going to struggle to understand some of the more difficult and not as clear teachings in scripture but we're going to stand firm on the essentials that are clearly taught in scripture the things that are essential to our salvation and when we address the secondary topics we disagree on we're going to do it in love and concern for one another and ask the Lord to lead us. One day, we're going to find out who's right. One day, the Lord is going to make it clear that everybody should have been listening to the Reformed Presbyterian people. <laughs> but until that day, until that day, we will persist to try to get on the same page. So it's interesting, having said that, that when Paul says we have one faith in the true church, he then says, we have one baptism. And I thought, no, that's not would have not been my first choice to say what we're all on the same page about. That's probably what's divided the church as much as any topic in, in the history of the church. But what Paul's talking about here is not the things we disagree about when it comes to baptism. He's not talking about the mode of baptism, whether you're sprinkled or dunked or poured upon or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about who receives the sign. These are important questions, whether it's adults only, professing believers only or infants. He's not addressing those secondary disagreements he's having. He's addressing what baptism is. Baptism is the mark that you've been brought into God's covenant community, into his church, into his visible church, and it represents the work of God in saving us. Baptism represents water, the water being applied to us, what it represents cleansing by the blood of Christ. It represents life, a regeneration by the Holy Spirit that is necessary for salvation. It represents being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. It represents God work, God's work in saving us. There is one baptism, one sign of entrance into the true church. But Paul goes on to say we are more than just fellow citizens of Christ's kingdom, and we are more than just fellow believers. He says Finally, we are one family. He says, there is one God and Father of all. You see, 
Family was God's idea. These days, if you listen to our culture, it'll tell us that we can make up our own idea of what a family is. We can define the family any way we want to. But scripture tells us that the family was designed by God. And the family, as we experience it, is just a picture of the true church. Family speaks of unconditional acceptance of one another. We are brothers and sisters. Family speaks of commitment to one another. I'll be there for you when you need me because we're family. Families are great examples of diversity that is coordinated into unity. Unity in the midst of diversity. That's what family is. My wife and I had five kids. Two of them have red hair. Neither my wife or I have red hair. We don't know where they came from, but DNA is an amazing thing. And we had two redheads. We also have three kids with differing shades of brown hair. Unity and diversity. We are one family with a lot of diversity. Some, some of my kids are extroverts. Some of my kids are introverts. Some of our kids are strong-willed. Just a coincidence, they also have red hair. But some of them, a couple of them are strong-willed. And some of them are more compliant. They have such different personalities. My wife and I used to comment, you just get one kid figured out, and then the Lord gives you another kid, and they're totally different. You have to totally rewrite the book on parenting in order to parent the second kid, and the third kid, and the fourth kid, and the fifth kid. So much diversity. And yet unity, because we love and accept each other unconditionally, and we're committed to one another. How do you know when you've really joined the church? You join the church when you give your testimony to the elders. You join the church when you take your vows in front of the congregation. But when you really join the church is when you feel that this body of believers, this group of people, they're my spiritual family. They accept me unconditionally and they're committed to me no matter what. That's the true church as God looks at his church from heaven. And yes, we hurt each other in the family. Some people think that people, you know, that Christians are worse than people out in the world because in the church we hurt each other more deeply than we get hurt out in the workplace or the classroom or among our friends. I've always said, no, it's, it's not that Christians are worse than people out in the world. It's that we're a family here. And when we have conflict and when we offend each other, when we hurt each other, it hurts deeper because we trust each other in a family. But we also know how to deal with that hurt that the world doesn't know how to deal with. So that's how God sees the church from heaven. It's one church, the true church. But the visible church is hopelessly divided. So how can we think about the invisible church as God sees it as being one body with one spirit, with one hope, one creed, one family serving one Lord? How can we look at the church that way in light of all the division? Well, as I said, we didn't create the unity that God sees in the true church. We didn't create it, and we cannot destroy it. But we can sure mess it up. In verse 3, that's why Paul says in verse 3, I want to go back there now to the beginning of the passage. In verse 3, the key to this whole passage where Paul says, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What Paul is saying is 
This unity that the true church has is a gift from God given to us by the Holy Spirit that indwells us. But our calling is to maintain it, to nurture it. We are stewards of it. We nurture it, we strengthen it, we protect it. And it requires great effort on our part to do that. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Since unity is strength, he does his best to promote separation. And that's the reality that we face as a church in the eyes of God and at the mercy of Satan's attacks. So how do we guard and promote the unity of the church in light of this? Well, I want to point out that here in chapter 4, there's been a shift. You almost always see this in Paul's writings. Paul is changing his focus here from the creed in the first three chapters to exhortations to, about our conduct in the last three chapters. He's shifting from principle to practice. He's shifting from doctrine to deeds. He's shifting from exposition to exhortation. And this is Paul's normal approach in teaching. It's an important approach. It should be our approach in our preaching and teaching in the church today. That first and foremost, we must understand the gospel of God's grace. Deeply understand it. And then seek to apply it to the way we live, to live accordingly. Once we understand grace and the gospel. When I was a brand new Christian, my brother... His conversion to Christ actually was instrumental in me coming to know Christ. And so I was a new Christian, but so was he at that time. And one of the first words of advice he gave to me, I'll never forget, he said, stay away from doctrine because doctrine divides. I appreciate his concern. And I know what he's talking about. I've seen it many times that people fighting hurting each other and damaging the church over fights over doctrine. I know what he's talking about. But it's sin that divides there, not biblical doctrine. False doctrine will divide the church. But true doctrine, biblical doctrine, unites the church. That's what Paul does in the first three chapters. He lays out the basis of his exhortations we're going to get in the rest of the book. And so what Paul is saying here is, Start by emphasizing grace in our preaching, in our teaching, in our relationships, and in our practice. In verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's he talking about? What's the calling? Well, the calling is back in chapter 1. That glorious chapter 1 where he talks about how God called us by grace alone before the foundation of the world to be his children through the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the calling. The calling to come alive that he talks about in chapter 2 from spiritual death so that we can put our faith in Christ and follow him and find eternal life in him and be reconciled to our God. That's the calling. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's the same thing that he says over in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27, when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And then he goes on in that verse 27 of Philippians 1 to say, so that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You hear what he's saying? Understand the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply. Live a life worthy that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you'll be one. You find the source of your unity in emphasizing grace. That's what he's saying. Be what you are by God's grace. Chapters 1 to 3 are all about God's grace to us. And at the end of chapter 3, we saw this last week, Paul prays that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That's everything he's been describing in the first three chapters is the love of Christ for you. Get rooted and grounded in that. And if we all enter into that pursuit together, it'll fuel our unity. That's what he's saying. The gospel must be the reason for what you do, whatever it is that you do, every moment of your life. Ultimately, the gospel's the reason. Grace must be the motivation for all of your obedience. When we train our children, as toddlers, they understand very little except for fear. Fear of the consequences of misbehavior. Fear of discipline. But as they get older, you expect them to begin to get beyond obeying out of fear, to begin to obey because they're members of the family. Why should I do my chores? Why should I clean my room? Why should I brush my teeth? Well, you're a member of our family. You have an obligation as part of our family to do what the family requires of you. So you expect them to move from obedience due to fear to obedience due to obligation. But then the next stage is you really want them, by the time they're in middle school or so, you want them to really begin to obey because they don't want to lose your favor as your, their parent. They, they, they've experienced your love as a parent, and they don't want to lose that intimacy they have in their relationship with you, so they obey. So they're obeying now out of love and thankfulness for what you've given and done for them as a parent. And you haven't done your job as a parent unless by the time they leave your household that they're, they've shifted that from you as their parent to God himself, obeying because they love God and don't want to lose the intimacy with him. But that all starts with an understanding of grace, understanding of the gospel. But what happens then, and this is the way it happened, Paul has a clear sequence here. As you deepen your understanding of the grace that's given to us in the gospel, what it does is it produces humility. A trait that is essential to our unity as the church. In verse 2 he says it's with all humility that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The more that you understand that apart from God's grace you were spiritually dead. You were enemies of God. You were children of wrath. As chapter 2 teaches. And that. Everything good in your life is a gift of God's grace that you didn't deserve in any way. The more truly humble you'll be, the more you understand that. And there is no character trait more important to your Christian life than humility based in an understanding of grace. You know what's interesting? In the Greek language, the, the, what we understand as humility in English, there was no, Greek, there was no word in Greek for that. You know why? Because the Greeks didn't respect humility. The Greeks didn't think that somebody was humble, that they, they, they thought that was a bad trait. They, they equated it with being servile, cowering under oppressors or whatever. 
That didn't fit Greek culture. It didn't fit Roman culture. And so the Greek language didn't even have a word for humility. So Paul makes one up. Paul coins a term. It literally means, you put the words together, it literally means lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of being high-minded. It's the opposite of being self-exalting. It's the opposite of being self-assertive for your own selfish will. Be humble. James 4, verse 6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a key verse for your life. C.S. Lewis once said that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And pride destroys the unity of the church. How many divisions, damaging divisions in the church were caused by human pride? But humility has a healing effect in the life of the church. Humility is Christ-likeness. There's that great passage in Philippians 2 that talks about Christ's humility, how he humbled himself, took on human flesh, dwelt in our midst. He was humble even to the point of going to the cross and allowing himself to be humiliated and killed horrifically so that because of his humility, God exalted him and raised him to his throne in heaven that he might have the name Lord. But did you ever notice the beginning of that passage? We often skip the beginning of that passage. Paul shares that glorious picture of how Christ humbled himself as the reigning eternal son of God to being crucified on a cross for our salvation. He prefaces it with instruction about our unity based in humility. Let me read that part to you. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You see, humility is Christ-likeness. It's the life we are called to if we are going to be like Christ. To put the needs of others before our own. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Humility then, Paul says, creates gentleness. And again, the scriptures have a very high view of the, of the fruit of the Spirit that we call gentleness. Some translations, the older translations especially, use the word meekness there. And it's no, it's no accident that newer translations don't use the word meekness because meekness has a negative connotation in our culture. When you think of meekness, you know, the first thing that comes to mind maybe is that old phrase, meek as a mouse. Meekness to, uh, in English tends to throw up images of timidity, images of weakness, cowardliness. That's not has nothing to do with what the biblical term meekness was about or gentleness. In scripture, gentleness or meekness is related to self-control. It's an aspect of self-control. It means putting whatever strength you have, whatever power you have, whatever authority you have, putting it in submission to the Lord. It's the word that they used when they talked about taming wild animals. When you break a horse, you are teaching them to be gentle. 
to be meek. That's what the biblical term means. It's submitting your strength to the one who is Lord over your life. Giving the Lord the reins of your life, so to speak, in that metaphor. Meekness is having all your strength and all your abilities under the control of the Lord Jesus. You see why I say it's an aspect of self-control. And so in light of that, Jesus says something very interesting to his disciples. He says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, like a strong ox, take my yoke upon you. Let me take control of your life. He says, take my yoke upon on you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, it is not easy to take the yoke of Christ upon yourself. In fact, many times that's a very hard thing to do, to submit your strength of will, to submit, submit your abilities, to submit your gifts to the Lordship of Christ and trust him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's meekness. That's gentleness. And you remember what happened when the soldiers came to arrest him? Peter pulled out his sword. And Jesus said, put away. Listen to what he said to Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Talk about strength under control. Jesus had at his beck and call, you know, 12 legions of angels if he wanted to assert his own will. But he was here to do the Father's will and to go to the cross so that you and I could be saved. That's gentleness. That's meekness. He allowed himself to be tormented, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be spit upon and nailed to the cross to hang until he died because of his love for the Father and his love for us, for his church. To be Christ-like is to take his yoke upon you. To embrace suffering if necessary and sacrifice if necessary for the sake of God's will and for the benefit of others. To put the needs of others before your own. You see how this process is working? It begins with humility which creates this gentleness, this, this you know, you, you start with an understanding of God's grace, which produces humility, which produces this gentleness or meekness, which then produces the final step, as Paul lists it here, patience, bearing with one another in love. I, I've noticed that some, some commentators say, well, you could translate that putting up with one another. And certainly in the church, we need to put up with one another. But again, the English connotation of that is not good. Because when you think of putting up with somebody, it means biting your tongue. It means repressing your anger. But when he talks about patience, what he's talking about is putting the needs of others before your own. Not being easily provoked. R.C. Sproul once said that every sinner is like a minefield. Because of We've dealt with our offenses against us in so many different ways with repression and biting our tongue and you know, unhealthy ways. We're like a minefield. We've got things you don't want to step on or we're going to blow up in your presence. We're easily provoked. An emphasis on grace that produces humility, that produces gentleness, that produces bearing with one another in love, produces a loving response to offense, not a selfish response to offense. 
It's a patience with others. It's rooted in the awareness of God's grace. And when you think about God's grace, is God just put up with you? Sure feels like that sometimes. God's just putting up with me, man. I don't know how he puts up with me. But he doesn't just put up with us, does he? He dealt with our sin. We're forgiven. And he always puts our needs. He's there to meet our true needs, whether we like it or not. He's putting our needs before the will of Christ, even, that was in the, in the garden that said, Don't my, you know, I know what I want. I want to avoid going to the cross, but no, I'm going to put the needs of my people before my own, and I'm going to die for their sins. God's grace toward us is not a begrudging, resentful, putting up with our sins and weaknesses. It's pure grace. Grace is acceptance of an offense or hurt from your brother or sister, either by overlooking it in love or by confronting them and calling them lovingly to repentance, whatever is best for them. That's what's going to drive your response to their offense against you and their hurt towards you. In verse 2, it says we're to bear with one another in love. Last week, we defined love from 1 John as being finding your joy and satisfaction and helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. Bearing with one another, loving them with the love of Christ, being rooted and grounded in that love. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is the ultimate definition of the kind of love that all this grace and humility and gentleness and bearing with one another produces. It says, love is patient and kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things because it's based in the grace of God. So let me ask you this morning, do you love the church? Then seek to make the inner unity that is ours as a gift, that cannot be destroyed, make that inner unity visible. Make it visible to each other. And then go out and make it visible to the world because that'll make a powerful witness. As Jesus prayed, it'll show the world that he is who he claims to be, Lord and Savior. Our unity is important to that, that we love each other, are gentle to each other, are humble before each other because of the love that's shown to us first and foremost. Each one of you, just I want you to think about this as you go, each one of you has the ability to mess up our unity. Each one of you has the ability to deeply damage this church by sinfully causing division. When you gossip, when you slander, when you are hurt by each other and you refuse to go and lovingly confront the other person, call them repentance, or to overlook it in love when you instead go and complain about them to another brother or sister. When you Try to push your agenda, what you want the church to be or what you want your ministry to be instead of seeing yourself as part of the body and under the leadership of Christ and the leaders he appoints. There are so many ways in which you can be divisive. And scripture, the New Testament is clear. Divisiveness is a sin. You have the ability to do that. You can do great damage by being divisive. But conversely, each one of you has the ability, by God's grace, to promote and protect the unity of the church by focusing your life upon the grace of God, growing in humility, growing in gentleness, 
and growing in patience with one another. And that's what you're called to. Walk worthy of your calling. God's word to you today is walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've given to us. You've given us your Spirit. And the oneness, the unity that we have because we're indwelt by your Spirit together is such a precious gift and yet we take it for granted in so many ways. Forgive us for the many ways in which we damage the unity of the true church. The ways in which we fail to maintain it. The way in which we fail to protect it. Lord, we pray for the leadership of the church especially as they have a special responsibility to protect and nurture this unity. But Lord, each one of us has our part to play. Give us the mindset of Christ. The one that puts the needs and interests of others before our own. Give us a deep humility based in the gospel that will drive our gentleness and patience. And may we bear witness to Christ, the one whom you sent to be Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.